for a procurement manager, for sourcing people, the very first thing to understand is what is the strategy of the company? Yeah. So what good looks like for us is very different than what good looks like for a large manufacturing company or for like an Amazon, which just has, you know, an amazing amount of volume going through it, right? So we're trying to find that balance between financial risk management and sustainability in our procurement and make sure we kind of hit all three of those. This is Smarter Sourcing, a show dedicated to helping sourcing and procurement leaders elevate their influence and get their seat at the table. Our mission is to empower listeners to reimagine their roles and make that happen. In each episode, we'll speak with an innovative leader to distill best practices, learn from their mistakes, and leave you with actionable insights that you can immediately put to work. Here's your host, executive producer for Smarter Sourcing, John Pavia. Now let's jump right into today's episode. Welcome everyone to this episode of Smarter Sourcing. I'm John Pavia, and today I am joined by Laura Smith-Weber, the CFO of Inari. And we are coming to you live actually from the ICR conference in Orlando, Florida. Laura, thank you so much for doing this. I remember I, in my last company, I finally got to work in an office that it was one of those offices. I remember watching the show 30 something and the guys who had this advertising firm and I said, and it was a really cool office, you know, and they're overly creative people. And I said, I'll never get to work in an office like that. Well, my last position, it was a really cool office. I have to imagine that this company was maybe one of those companies that at least I would look at and say, man, that is just such a cool company because you guys are figuring out stuff that's in the future to me. And I can't wait to ask you about what it's like to be there. I know you just got there. But first, before we get into that, your background is just as interesting to me. I'd love for you to spend a couple of minutes telling us how you got to where you are today. Well, sure. Well, thank you. I'm really happy to be here. So thanks. And yeah, I mean, it's my background. I'm actually an electrical engineer by training. So I spent the first five years of my life doing mobile data networks. Then I went into consulting, some management consulting at Booz Allen. But why electrical engineering first? What drew you to that? I was always good at math and science. Mm. So I was always like one of those like really numbers focused people. And, and what was interesting at that time, I never thought of a career in finance ever. And I was like, you know, like, and I'm going to say maybe a little bit of the school system, you know, girls are always pushed towards STEM, like they want more women and in math and science. So I did that for five years, but I went to consulting and I was like, you know what? I actually understand companies through numbers. And I thought that was pretty cool. So I'd build models and I would see how like, okay, if, if this happens over here, what is the impact? And, and I just thought, you know, strategy kind of comes to life with like, you know, a good model, good numbers. And I switched to finance and I've been in finance for 17 years. So... I really started at the bottom and I have done almost every position in finance. So I've been in controller, I've been done FBA. But after the consulting, it wasn't this wasn't the first company right after the No, no, no. I worked for Telefonica, which is a huge global network operator. I was abroad at that time and I, you know, started at the bottom and worked my way up and actually met somebody about 2013. So about 10 years ago, I met the founder of a biotech. He said, come build a finance function. And I was really fortunate to grow there, to build a team, to get various functions. So you got to do a bunch of different things. Yeah, right? I, got, I got to do kind of the whole spectrum of finance. And that's really a divider, I think a separator between your lawyers and your accountants and your CFOs, general counsels are the ones who've spent some time building companies, running companies as operators, but also have that administrative function as well. And I think it, in my opinion, having done it from the legal side, it helps in understanding. Thanks. 
how a company makes money, how it loses money and everything in between. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, and I think it's great to be able to understand the more hands-on level, but then also be able to take that. And then, as I say, actually, for me, the more fun part of finance is like, you know, what is the strategy? How do you actually use this like financial view of the company to move the company forward, to get the company funded? And actually events like this, you know, talking to investors. So so after I was, I became eventually the U.S. CFO of that biotech. That's how I came back. I was in Europe. I came back to the U.S. And then I worked. Um, was it at, Germany? It was a German company. Was how called, many years there? I was there for nine years. Wow. So it was a German company. It was called Morphosis. It's a immune oncology. So it's in biotech space. And uh, I then went to Onward Medical. Onward Medical is also an amazing, like making a medical device that's implanted and trying to get paralyzed people to move and walk again. So you got to use your number skills, but also clearly from your your engineering side, your the, the creative side of it, which oh, is absolutely. how you create something that's almost futuristic. Absolutely. That's so cool. So I want to get into the company a little bit, into Inari, but I am interested, you know, I don't really care about, you can go into as much detail as you want, but you know, whether someone called you up and said, hey, awesome opportunity with this company. What was it about Inari that you said, okay, this is cool. I want to, I want to try this. So the way I came to Inari was really through a friend. It was a personal connection. And I'm going to say a little bit of a, like a sustainability geek. So I have the solar roof and the electric cars and the heat pumps and really try, you know, compost. Everything I don't have, like everything, everything you don't have. <laughs> I um, never get them to work. Exactly. So I really, I'm going to say, certainly there's some concern. It, my view is like, you know, kind of worries me sometimes when I hear all the news and all the okay. things that are going on with planet. I'm like, okay. So yeah, this friend said, hey, they said, Lara, you really need to look at this company. And so just a little bit about Inari. So Inari is using genomics to change the genomes of plants to be grown with less water, fertilizer, and land. So these are Jack and the Beanstalk, smarter seeds that requires less land, less water. And my question is, as I was reading about it, do they grow better product, better corn, better soybeans, more, are they healthier or is it they just use less land, less water? Well, the very first thing we're focusing on is yields. So it really is actually, so if you have the same plot of land, the goal is to make 10 to 20% more output, so more food with that amount of land. And that is good, number one, for sustainability, because you need less land and less water on the land and less fertilizer, which is also, so nitrous oxide is one of the main causes of the greenhouse gas effect that, that we, you know, global warming. But then it's also good because it's good for the farmers. Actually, it helps their bottom line and their profitability. And it's good for our food supply. So we have a growing population. Now, there are estimates that will be something like 10 billion people by 2050. So I'd say it kind of tackles all three of those issues with one. I mean, yeah, starting with the seed, which is kind of the most basic part of nature. So give us, I know, and I understand the basics of it's you're focused on a better yield, improving the yield. Give us a use case that knucklehead like me can understand in terms of with a normal seed, what the yield would be, whether it's corn, soybeans, whether versus your kind of seed, what's the difference? Well, I mean, with a normal seed, you know, you have a certain number of bushels per acre and you just take that and you say, okay, I'm going to get 10% more bushels per acre if you plant this seed instead of- So 10% is sort of the bogey to- or we're, our, our goal is 10 to 20%. And we may actually change that goal in the future, but I mean, definitely we have our first results. And that's definitely achievable, the 10, 20 percent. We may actually even be able to do more. And what about areas where the seeds can actually take root and grow? 
are they can they grow more easily in places that have water shortages versus places that don't or is it you still need you still want to be in places where farming is really good so you know we have a roadmap actually kind of we're a platform company in the sense that we have the technology we have so we use generative ai so plant genomes are complex actually but, you know the soy genome is about 50,000 genes hmm. more than double what the human genome is so we use generative ai to figure out what genes to edit and then we have a multiplex. We are able to do multiple gene edits on one plant genome. And with that, we can actually achieve these results. So coming back to that roadmap. So we do have a roadmap. And one of the things on there is called water use efficiency. So it's, and that, it's a great question. Because when you say, what do you want to do with water use efficiency? Do you want to make a plant that grows with less water? Mm. Well, it, that's one thing that you could do, for example. But probably more interesting in our world of today is wouldn't you want to make a plant that is more, I guess, you know, a hardier plant that can could deal with a drought, but could also deal with a huge storm. Because if you look at like what's going on today, you know, huge storms in California last year, right? Tons and tons of rain versus sometimes you don't have. So I think that when you ask, is can it grow anywhere? I mean, right now, it's certainly initially we're targeting the U.S. We're targeting the farmers that are already currently growing soy, and then eventually we're focused on soy, corn, and wheat. So we're focused on those. But in the future, that's something certainly is on our roadmap for the future to look at things like more resilient sure. version of these plants. Yeah, having a seed that can grow something yeah. in sub-Saharan yeah. Africa where nothing can grow, right? And so I want to get into the company structure, of the company, your role in the company, direct reports, and and get into the you know how you guys source procurement. But just to be clear, your target right now, right, in terms of your true north, the customer you're going after, who's going to use your seed, who's going to buy it, large farming outfits, small farmers, who's the target client? So we actually, we sell generally to three types of people. The first one is independent seed companies. And the independent seed companies actually sell to the farmers. So one of the things, our core confidence is technology. We're good at editing genomes. And so one of the first decisions we made was we said we we're going to do an asset light model. So we sell a parent seed to a company, which then bulks it. Our core competency is not actually doing all of the production. So we don't sell directly to farmers. We sell to that kind of, and there are different kinds of intermediaries, but those between the technology and then actually the seed that goes to the farmers, there are independent seed candidates, there's their big multinationals. And then they're distributors. And those are the three segments that I would say that are in the middle of Th that. That's helping. So, so that's the benefit of asking a, a yeah. dumb question because at least it totally changes my, my perspective now because there's the seed companies who sell to yeah. the farmers exactly. and you guys sell to the seed companies. Okay, so now let's talk about the company itself. Based up in Cambridge, Mass? Exactly. And is that the only office or other offices around the world, around the country? No, we have three offices. So, I mean, Cambridge, Massachusetts is where it all started and where we have our, our first wet labs where we're actually, you know, editing the genes of plants. But then we also decided that we needed a, when we got bigger, we needed to actually start doing greenhouses and field experiments. And of course, it's a uh, farm country USA. So we have a large office in West Lafayette, Indiana. Then we also went abroad to the farming Benelux region. So we have an office in Ghent, Belgium, which is also a lot of farming and agriculture. And how many full-time employees in the company have? About 300, 315, somewhere. I don't know the exact number today, but it's a little more than 300. And most with some kind of engineering, scientific background, mostly? 
actually all sorts of, I mean, clearly we have plant biologists, right? right? So that's what you would expect, but we have profited so much from bringing different people in. So we have people from cancer research because we're using CRISPR-Cas, which is this, yep. um, you know. Familiar. Exactly. So we're using CRISPR-Cas to edit genomes. And that actually, there's quite a lot of research done more on the human biology side. So we pull people in from from all types of kind of uh, natural science. It's not just the plant biologists, but also you know cancer researchers or chemists that then come and help us. In so then give us an idea of the structure of the company and where you sit in Cambridge, the executive team, and then you have your sales team, your engineer, your research team. Just a, if you could, a sort of a schematic of the, how the company's organized. Yeah, my finance organization is, I'd say, probably pretty straightforward. You know, I have a controlling, so the, the accountants and controllers, then I have an FP&A team. I do have two people in procurement and sourcing, which I know that we're going to be talking about. And Clay Graham, who's here with me today, is our VP of Capital Markets. So I think absolutely invaluable is when you're a smaller company and fundraising often to have somebody on your team that does that. Yeah, and you guys are, you. I think you just closed a big round recently, correct? Or sometime in the last year? Yeah, yeah. so we, we closed our Series E last year, $125 million, and we are currently fundraising. So we're right in the thick of things for our Series F. Truly believe that this company belongs on a stock exchange, but the markets have not been conducive. And raising money is something that you've done. And, yeah, and, absolutely. You know, for people who have not done it and then to get put into that role, it's, it's such a distraction that's hard to handle and do both. All right, so let's talk about the, how you're structured as it relates to sourcing and procurement, because I would imagine your people costs are your biggest cost right now, Second. right? And then what are your other major cost drivers in this kind of business? Well, I mean, people costs, and then we do have, you know, we're, when we're actually editing genes, so we have a lot of lab expenses as well. Mm -hmm. And then we have field expenses, so it kind of goes through from, you know, being an idea, you know, actually AI at the very beginning, we have some real people that are figuring out which genes then to edit into the labs. So then we have lab expenses then, and then it goes into the greenhouse in the field. So we also have some of those greenhouse and field expenses as well. You are totally right that our biggest expense is actually people. And I guess making sure we have the right talent on board is certainly one of our- Yeah, I was gonna say, do you, much of a, of a um temp labor force or everybody's mostly full FTEs, full-time employees? We, I'd say, tend towards full-time employees. If we find people we think they're great, we're giving, you know. Are people back in the office now fully or is it sort of hybrid remote? So we are, we are encourage people to be in the office. We have a really vibrant office culture in all three sites, actually. So I think there's not a hard rule that they need to be in the office a certain number of days a week but it is a vibrant office culture. So then I would also imagine that compliance, legal, IT are also some major cross drivers because you're an intellectual property yeah. firm. Um, Absolutely. And so that's also a big, so I guess my question, that then that leads to, you know, it's such a different business than most of the yeah. companies that are here at ICR, but what keeps you up at night? When you think from a redundancy standpoint, from a people standpoint, from an IP protection standpoint, you know, what are those things that, you know, you turn off the light and you're thinking, let me make sure I wake up and I check this. And and, That's a great and what do you wake up thinking about? Well, I mean, I think actually, so I'd say there, there's two things that we, we have, I mean, an amazing, very smart scientists and AI folks that are doing great research. And we are fortunate that we've already had some great results with our products. So I'd say that one thing that we do think about is we are supply constrained, not demand constrained, mm. which is a, a luxury problem to have, but it's about how do you ensure that there's enough supply and there is a certain speed to growing plants, right? So if you put one plant in, it generates a certain number of seeds the next season. 
it takes time to actually bulk up enough seeds to be able to supply the market. So if you ask, that, that's one thing I think that we think a lot about is how can we actually, if we could, you know, how can we accelerate that process or anything we can do to accelerate that process? That's more on the business side. But you're at the beginning of the supply chain for your yep. customers. Exactly, right. exactly. But until we actually do that bulking, then the, I mean, that's, that's something actually in terms of what keeps, you know, if I had a magic wand and can make that bulking happen right now, that would, because that would just give me, I mean, as a, as a CFO, it's like, you know, when I'm going to actually have my first revenues and, and when am I going to break even? And the whole, the whole, I guess, path to profitability is a little bit waiting on that, on that, on that supply constraint. So, you know, if I had a magic wand, I think that's something certainly I would do. But with a magic wand, would you wave it and have five more greenhouses around the country where you're growing more seeds and more people to grow them? Or I mean, with a magic wand, I would say if I could get a plant to make, you know, instead of 20 or 50 seats per plant, I, 100. I see. I mean, it's... Uh, so I know you just got to this company in October, I believe. Mm -hmm. So let's talk generally about your, your strategies as a CFO when it comes to sourcing and procurement. We were talking a little bit before we, we went on camera just your strategies as it relates to, you know, good practices from a procurement standpoint that you've brought to you, you've learned from other places, you've learned from other people, and, you know, how it relates to your views on the importance that it plays in the success of the business, especially when it comes to procurement, really interacting and exchange ideas with the stakeholders who they're procuring for. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, I mean, Anari is, is really special because, you know, sustainability is at the core of our business. So I think it kind of puts a, an, an additional lens on the procurement function mm. because it's not just about, there's definitely always, you know, financial and risk management considerations, but there's also the sustainability that it would be very odd for a company like this to not have kind of ethical sourcing, making sure that our suppliers are also, you know, doing the right thing on the back of what yeah. they're actually. I saw the best. code of conduct here for your exactly. vendor, vendor code of conduct. Yeah. I mean, they need to, exactly. it, now how do you police that? Cause, and for anybody watching, Anari has a code of conduct uh, for their vendors that's published on their website. And without going into detail, there is in paper or on black and white, there is like high expectation that you're an ethical company, that you're compliant with whatever exactly. you're supplying Anari with, et cetera, et cetera. And you probably have a very good, you know, equity and inclusion program yourself. So how do you police that from your yeah. end? We're also a small company. We ask, we request, and then once we have the information, it's an honor system, if you will. Because right. I think your competition, I'm sure they're sleeping with one eye open because you guys are growing fast. And I'm sure it's something that you need to be concerned about from a compliance standpoint, but also, you know, any competitor of yours would love to see you guys trip up and mm -hmm. be doing business with some supplier that, mm -hmm. you know, they're going to criticize you for. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that fall under you? Is that compliance? Compliance is actually under our GC, under our general counsel. Good. <laughs> Give it to the Lord. That's still no. But no, so, I mean, if you ask about, you know, procurement, what is our focus? It's finding the balance. So, yes, I mean, we have the probably the kind of standard that most companies have. You know, we're working on our technology. We're working on putting the right systems in place. We're a small company, but we want to build that foundation to grow. We're also working on, you know, we have the kind of top-down strategy where you look at your vendors, your biggest ones. You do, you know, a supplier management. You say, what is my strategy for each of these large vendors? And then we have this sustainability aspect. And so taking a look back to what you've learned from the other places you've been, you're at Inari now and you're bringing on a, your number two or whoever. You're bringing someone on. You're, bringing, you're retiring tomorrow. You're bringing on your replacement. What's the advice you give them coming on to a place like Inari with respect to good sourcing and procurement and, you know, running this department in general? 
That's, that's a, a great, that's a good question. <laughs> no, I think if somebody, especially if, I, if you, I were bringing on a new procurement management, I think the advice I would give them is say, look, it's a different company, right? And I think that in general, that for a procurement manager, for sourcing people, the very first thing to understand is what is the strategy of the company? Yeah. So what good looks like for us is very different than what good looks like for a large manufacturing company or for like an Amazon, which just has, you know, an amazing amount of volume going through it, right? So as I said, you know, we're, we're trying to find that balance between financial risk management and sustainability in our procurement and make sure we kind of hit all three of those. And of course, we want to be financially sound, but it's not the only factor in our procurement. So I guess the advice I would give to somebody or if, I, you know, somebody who's coming to on board, I'd say, make sure that, you know, think about what's good look like for the procurement function of this, your company that you're in now, and then build a strategy on that and go from there. I think that's such a great point because coming from the legal side, where you're not the person making the widget, but you've got a hand in everything and supporting all the different divisions that go into making the widget. Understanding, you know, from the company standpoint, what does good look like? How do I contribute to this company? How it makes money, how it doesn't make money, but also how it achieves its goals beyond yeah. just the, the dollars and cents. All right, so with that said, let's go now turn to something that, and we'll, we'll sort of finish with this and then sign off, but AI has changed already so many different industries. And I'm interested to hear in the short time that you've been there, you know, what you've seen and how you, how it's changed the business already and what you see and how it's going to change it going forward from both just the business standpoint, from the procurement standpoint, from whatever perspective you want to give it. Well, from the pure procurement standpoint, I'm sure that there's actually a lot to be seen in all the technology. So we're putting in one of the standard procurement systems right now. And I'm sure that all of those, tech, regardless technology vendors, they're looking at, you know, can... AI actually be connecting the dots for you behind the scenes that right now the humans are doing about you, you know, matching up suppliers and saying, oh, actually, you know, you could save some more if you do go with this one or that, making suggestions, actually proposing things for procurement strategies. So I'm sure that there will be a lot within the procurement software space that we'll see for procurement. And then for the company, I mean, for the company, I'm just going to say it is, we're starting out. So, you know, we have software that links up all of the data. There's a big data lake that looks up from the lab to the prototypes, to the greenhouse, to the field. So we have a big data lake and then it can actually draw in from there. And so scientists can go in and say, I want to know this. And then they get this, they have a lot more information when they're actually thinking about things. And I think we're starting in AI. We're starting to build systems that do it. It's something that we're still working on. But I think that's something that's truly going to differentiate the company as we go forward. Because if we can figure that out, you know, I mean, just be be amazing at identifying and understanding the networks of genes. It's generally not just one gene. So it's not like, you know, if you want to increase yield, it's not just, you know, you knock out one gene and off you go. It's actually a much more complex problem. And I think, and that's where we're, we're going in the future that we want to build on that and get better. In this role, how much do you get to use your creative side, your engineering side beyond numbers that a CFO always has to be concerned with? How much do you get to get away from your desk and into the labs, into the greenhouses? Do you get a chance to do that? That's a great question. I would say not yet. Not yet. But I mean, I've only been there for a few months. So I mean, right now, you know, it's, I'd say to be expected that I'm just, you know, I'm also new to the agricultural industry as it is. So, so I'm, I'm still learning. Stuff. Yeah, I'm still learning. But, but, you know, something definitely would be willing to do and interested in doing as well. So you, you talked about, you know, hiring and what you're looking for, what the advice you would give. What do you think is important? And I know everybody's different. Every role is different. But 
this is a, such a different company than your garden variety companies that you speak with on, on most days you come into contact with. What do you think is important for a person who says they want to, oh, yeah, there's a job opening, I'm, I'm interested in joining an RE, working great, but what would you think is important that they have to be aligned with the company on in order to really be successful there? I think I would say number one, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It has a mission. Yeah. Right. Our vision is where we are seeding change for renewed earth. That's that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to figure out how to seed change. And certainly some people come to Inari for that, for that mission. But I say, if you ask me what I'm looking for, number one is people who connect the dots, people who can actually see, and especially at Inari, because we're very, all functions are working together actually on, on one common mission. But I think in general, actually, also in past companies I've been with, that's that's really the kind of the employee that makes the difference for me mm. is somebody who can, you know, they're working on on one thing, but they're saying, oh, you know, I was in this meeting yesterday and that's going to impact here. And, oh, that other person, if I give them this information, it's going to make their life easier. And I think that, you know, as we go forward, actually, that kind of network within a company is just more and more important each year. That That's what I see. Well, listen First of all, thank you so much for doing this interview. I can't tell you how much I appreciate the minutes that you gave us. And I hope that you come back next year or when we're at some other conference together and I get to ask you, okay, so this is what we talked about a year ago. Where's Anori today and you know how's it going? Because uh, it's such an exciting company and I'm jealous in a way that you get to do this. So <laughs> well, I, yeah. I look forward to checking in. Well, thank you. Great being on the show. So Thank you. Absolutely. And to everyone out there, thanks for joining us and please, uh, Check the website for uh, future episodes of Smarter Sourcing. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Smarter Sourcing. For more episodes, visit www.smartersourcing.com or search Smarter Sourcing on your podcast platform of choice.